And as you're resuming your seats, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. The book of Exodus chapter 20. As we have been over the past several months when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we take a break from our Hebrews sermon series and, and look at some practical aspects of the Christian life. And now we're in the middle of a series through the Ten Commandments. And so this morning we'll be looking at the third commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Give attention to God's holy word. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is one of the greatest blessings of your covenant that you have revealed to us your great name. And not only have you revealed to us your great name, but in the grace of the Lord Jesus and through the work of the Spirit, you have placed your name upon us so that we are called by your name. We pray now, Lord, as we look at this commandment, that you would help us and teach us what it means to fear that great and dreadful name, the Lord our God. And we pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well might a Christian of the 21st century say, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I'm a blasphemous man and I dwell in the midst of a blasphemous people. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If there's one sin that should characterize this generation of the church, one sin that summarizes the evil of our day, the sin that has infected all of our hearts to one degree or another, and renders our Uh, infected our hearts and minds and renders the means of grace ineffectual in our lives and in our churches, that sin would be blasphemy. The reigning morality of our day is actually a perversion of this commandment. It is a perverse form of blasphemy. The chief sin that one can commit in America today, the sin that will get you canceled from the internet, The sin that will get you barred from the banking system, fired from your job, kicked out of school, and in some churches railed against in the pulpit is a form of secular blasphemy. If you use the wrong pronoun, use a term that has been ruled hurtful or degrading, put forward a view of the sexes or of civil government or of the nations, that has been deemed politically incorrect. If you say the wrong things in our society, and sadly in much of the church, you're guilty of secular blasphemy in 21st century America. Blasphemy is quite simply the sin of speaking irreverently of holy things. Blasphemy is speaking evil of things that are holy. With all of the speech codes that are the de facto law of the land, man and his personal feelings have been elevated to the most holy place. 
You understand that today's blasphemy laws, de facto blasphemy laws, not de jure, meaning they're not written in the law books, but the courts rule this way. With our de facto blasphemy laws today, it is man who has been elevated, along with his personal feelings, to the place of the most holy. The scriptures tell us we shall not take the Lord's name in vain, but our society says, Thou shalt not speak ill of somebody's personal opinion. That's blasphemy in a secular sense. And there are few who consider what God's law really says about blasphemy. There are few who fear to take the Lord's name in vain. How often do we hear the Lord's name taken in vain? There are few who are afraid to take the Lord's name in vain, but they, those same people, would never dare to take man's name in vain and speak something that is politically incorrect. Reverence for holy things is the fruit of fear in the heart. If we show outward reverence for the things of God, that means we have the fear of God in our hearts. We blaspheme what we do not fear. And we revere the things that we fear. The widespread outward sin of blasphemy in our day indicates the horrible absence of the fear of God in our hearts. Living in the ruins of the Christian West, breathing in the spirit of our age, our souls are in danger of blasphemy as well. We're probably guilty of blasphemy even now, many of us. The rot, the rot has gone so far in this society, many of us are probably guilty even now. This commandment is a lesson and a warning. As a lesson, it teaches us the manner in which we are to worship God. If you compare the first four commandments, all of them are about worship. The first commandment is, who do you worship? The second commandment is, how do you worship? The third commandment is, in what manner or what attitude should you worship with? And the fourth commandment is, when to worship? So this commandment teaches us the manner in which we are to worship God. As a warning, it reminds us of the final judgment. As we take heed to this commandment, we as we take heed to this commandment, we by God's mercy will learn that the third commandment requires us to use all the means by which God reveals himself to us with reverence and fear. Those who do not will not escape God's judgment. Specifically, the third commandment requires us to use all the means by which God reveals himself to us with reverence and fear, for it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As we look at this passage, we're going to consider three things. I realize it's only one verse, but there are three things we need to consider in this verse and in this commandment. First, what does it mean to take God's name? Second, what does it mean to take God's name in vain? And then thirdly, what does it mean to fall into the hands of the living God? To take God's name, to take God's name in vain, and then to fall into the hands of the living God. 
So first, we look at what does it mean to take God's name? Well, the word in Hebrew that's used in this verse simply means to lift something up, to carry it, to take it away. It has a very wide range of meanings, very similar to the English word to take. Consider all these different examples. To take a bath. To take a hike. To take a train. To take up a cause. To take a case. See, we use the same word in all those different instances, but it means something a little bit different. The meaning of this word depends upon the object that we're speaking about. Here, to take God's name means to receive his self-revelation. To take God's name means to receive his own self-revelation. The name of God is the pinnacle of his self-revelation. This is a name that man did not come up with. Man did not invent the name of God or any of the titles of God that we find in the scriptures. The name of God that's been given to us is a name that God himself has given to man. Consider some passages. Exodus 3, 13 through 14. Moses is praying in front of the burning bush. The Lord has called him to go into Egypt and to deliver my people. And the Lord asks him, Who are you and what should I tell them? What is your name? And then the Lord answers and says, I am that I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. Likewise, in Exodus 34, 5, when Moses, after the golden calf incident, Moses refashions the two tables. He returns to Mount Sinai. He's asked the Lord to show him his glory. And the Lord comes down and it says that he came down. Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock. The Lord came down and proclaimed the name of the Lord as he passed by in front of Moses. Consider also John 17, 26. Turn to this passage. It's a very important passage when it comes to the name. John 17, 26. Christ is at the very end of his earthly ministry as far as his teaching office is concerned. He, he's come to the end of everything he has to teach, so to speak. And at the very end, he's praying to his father in John 17, that great prayer of our great high priest. And in verse 26, he concludes his prayer with these words. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Notice how Christ, as he summarizes his teaching ministry on earth, he summarizes it by saying, O righteous Father, I have proclaimed your name to the ones that you have given to me. Now one, this is a bit of an aside, but I hope this will feed your faith. This is a passage in light of Exodus 34, that proves the deity of Christ. Only God can reveal his own name. And for Christ to say that I have declared the name of the Father, Christ is saying I am a divine messenger because only God can declare God's own name. Now we need to think a little bit here because I want you to appreciate the grace of God in giving you his name. God's essence, who he is in himself, is incomprehensible. As it says in the book of Isaiah, 
My thoughts are above your thoughts. Even as far as the earth is above the heaven, my ways are above your ways. God's infinity and the magnitude of his being, even using those words, understand, brothers and sisters, when I say the magnitude of God's being, that's a metaphor. That's only a pale analogy because God's being is infinite. It, it, it does not conform to measurement, number, mass, volume, anything. He is the everlasting, everlasting God, incomprehensible to mankind. And because of this, we are not able to give him a name. You see, when you name something, you're exercising dominion over that thing, and you're also showing that you comprehend that thing. Remember when Adam was in the garden? What did he name? He named the animals. He didn't name God. He named those that were beneath him, that he could understand and comprehend. And so because God is so far above us, we cannot name him. In fact, theologians have said, uh, Herman Bavink summarizes this very well in his Reformed Dogmatics, Volume 2, where he speaks about the doctrine of God. He notes and he cites a bunch of theologians throughout history, and he says, properly speaking, God is nameless. Now that doesn't mean he's beneath us. That means he's so far above us. Whatever name we could come up with does not apply to him. Properly speaking, the divine essence cannot be comprehended and it cannot be named. It is impossible for us to know him. This means the name of God that we have in Scripture has been graciously revealed to God, revealed by God to us. The fact that God can condescend to our level, He who is incomprehensible, such that the angels are ashamed to be in His presence, comes down to our level and says, My name is Jehovah. This is how you refer to me. I know that my glory is too much for you to handle. No man can look upon me and live, but you can call upon this name. And this infinite and eternal God will be yours as you call upon this name. This is an example of what the Westminster Confession, chapter 7, paragraph 1 says. Chapter 7, paragraph 1 on the Westminster Confession of Faith says that, uh, well, let me just read it to you. It's in the back of your hymnal. If you have a good hymnal, some of them don't have the confession. Page 676, if you want to follow this quote. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures owe obedience unto Him as their Creator, yet they could never have any fruition of Him as their blessedness and reward. They could never call upon the name of God. They could never know Him as Jehovah. They could never know Him as Savior. They could never know Him as Father. But, by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. It means simply this. In a metaphorical sense, in the same way that a newborn child cannot comprehend who you are, 
and you lean down next to that child and say, Dad, Dad. The Lord God Almighty leans down to humanity and says, Jehovah. That's what you call upon me as. The revelation of God's name is one of the greatest acts of His grace and mercy to mankind. This means further, His name in the commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. His name is a placeholder for all of the ways that God reveals Himself to man. So the commandment only refers explicitly to the name, but that name, given how God has revealed it to us, refers to all of the other ways that God reveals Himself to us. This is what's known as a metonymy. A metonymy, or a metonym, if you want me to spell that, I can, M-E-T-O-N-Y-M. A metonym is where we take one part and we express the whole with that part. Scripture often speaks this way, especially the Ten Commandments. We use these in common everyday speech. Think about this. If I were to tell you I went to a coffee shop and I saw a bunch of suits. I'm talking about businessmen. That's a part for the whole. Let's say you were in your neighborhood and uh, you were to tell me that... um, we were sitting on our front, front porch and um, uh, a couple of Smokies came through our neighborhood. That one may be a little dated. Smokey refers to highway patrolmen who wore the Smokey the, Smokey the Bear hat. That's a little dated. Um, the word hearth refers to the home, part for the whole. Boots on the ground refers to an occupying army, part for the whole. That's how this commandment is written. The name is a part, but it refers to the whole of God's self-revelation. God's self-revelation includes several things. I'm just going to list off some examples of God's self-revelation. Nature itself, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Man himself, Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our own image. Man is a revelation of God and what he's like. Providence. Psalm 107.43, the psalmist at the end of that psalm which talks about God's providence, says, he who considers these things will understand the loving kindness of God. The, The word, the scriptures, Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The sacraments, Matthew 26, 26, Christ said that the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper are His body and His blood. The sacraments are a revelation of God's glory. Prayer is also a revelation of God. Several passages that we could look at here. The only one I refer you to is Romans 8, 14 through 16. Romans 8, 14 through 16. Romans 8, 14-16, Paul writes and says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Notice the work of the Spirit 
through a spirit-led prayer crying out, Abba, Father, is a testimony of your adoption by God. And so prayer is one of the ways that God reveals himself. There's other things we could list, visions, dreams, signs, wonders, all the things we read about in the Old Testament. For our purposes, because there is a vast array of things by which God reveals himself, we're only going to focus on the word, the sacraments, and prayer, classically understood as the means of grace. These means of grace are means of grace because it is by these means, the word, sacraments, and prayer, that God reveals himself to you, that God shows you his glory through these means. Well, we've seen what it means to take God's name. Now we need to spend some time thinking about what does it mean to take God's name in vain? Vain, in the passage in Exodus 20, verse 7, it's a masculine noun that means emptiness, vanity, evil, ruin, uselessness, deception, worthless, without result, fraud, deceit. The primary meaning of the word is deceit, lie, or falsehood. That's what vanity means. That's the fundamental meaning. To take God's name in vain, then, is to use his name or any other way that he reveals himself in an irreverent, light, or flippant, or inconsequential manner. It is to say with Israel in the book of Malachi, the table of the Lord is contemptible. Behold, what a weariness is God's service. Everyone who does evil is good. Where is the God of judgment? It is vain to serve God. What profit is there in keeping his ordinances that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? You know, if you read the book of Malachi, this idea of God's name and Israel's sin is the main theme of that book. And the main sin of Israel in the book of Malachi is blasphemy because they take the Lord's name in vain. Let's think about some examples. Baptism. God puts his name upon you in the sacrament of baptism. Matthew, uh, uh, Christ says in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go make disciples of all nations, teaching and baptizing them in the name of God the Father, uh, in the name of uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. God puts his name on you in this sacrament. To blaspheme the sacrament would mean to fail to improve your baptism. To fail to, uh, and to walk contrary to the grace which baptism signifies. What do I mean by this? In baptism, God separates you from the world and puts his name upon you as one of his children. To blaspheme our baptism would be to live a worldly life. To live as if you were still in the world and not a sanctified child of God. Prayer. In prayer, we call upon God's name in the name of Christ by the spirit of adoption which we were given through the spirit of adoption we're given the family name of heaven. Ephesians 3. To blaspheme in prayer is to approach prayer exalting ourselves rather than Christ. Look at Luke 18. Luke 18. 9 through 14.
Luke 18, verse 9, probably a famous parable to most of you. He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Notice the Pharisee's prayer, and as Luke writes it, he prayed with himself. His prayer is all centered on exalting himself and exalting his own righteousness. Now look at how the tax collector prays. Verse 13, the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to be a sinner. And the Lord says, he was heard, and not the other. We blaspheme the means of prayer when we approach prayer, seeking to exalt ourselves and not exalt the mercy of Christ, as the tax collector does here. The Word of God is the primary means of grace, whereby God is most clearly revealed to your faith. Through the Scriptures and through preaching, God most clearly reveals Himself to you. This is why in the Reformed tradition it's called the primary means of grace. To blaspheme here is to use the word without faith or to fail to grow in accord to what the word enjoins. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Second Timothy 3, Paul writes to Timothy and says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We often stop there when we look at this passage. But notice what verse 17 says. That the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. Scripture is given for the purpose of your growth. Scripture is given for the purpose of your salvation. Scripture is given for the purpose of equipping you thoroughly as a child of God. And when we approach the Scriptures with any other purpose, when we approach the Scriptures without believing in this promise, when we approach the Scriptures and lay it up in our hearts, but don't bring out the fruit of the Scriptures in our lives, we're blaspheming God's means. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, you who have no money. Come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine, milk, and money uh, without money and without price. The scriptures are open to everyone. The gospel invites all those, the poor, the rich, the despised, the honored. Everyone is invited to come. Everyone who is thirsty, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me and hear and your soul shall live. 
I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I've given him as a witness to the people, a leader and a commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him to our God and he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Listen carefully. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven... And do not return there, but water the earth and cause it to bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy, be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth in singing before you. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. And instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name. For an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. God's word is given so that you can bear fruit. And God's word will accomplish the purpose for which he sent it. To blaspheme God's word is to approach it and to use it in a way that is contrary to why he's given it to you. Let me, let me make this very simple let me, because this is so critical. God's word is not given to you for strife and debate and owning the liberals. God's word is given to you to transform you and to cause you to bear much fruit. There are many things that distract us in our life. There are many things that take us away from following the Lord. Let me encourage you, as you approach the scriptures, be concerned with your sanctification. God will take care of the rest. You don't need to worry about it. Last example, the Lord's Supper. In the name of Christ, we partake of bread and wine, receiving his grace and committing to live for his name and his glory alone. 1 Corinthians 11, we see what it looks like to blaspheme this sacrament. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. Paul, as he's writing to the Corinthian church, their church has become so corrupt their church has become so blasphemous that he says, when you gather together in verse 20, you're not eating the Lord's Supper. You may have bread, you may have wine, you may have an ordained minister speaking the words of institution, but because your hearts are so corrupt, when you gather together, it is no longer a sacrament of the Lord. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry and another is drunk. Do you not have houses to eat in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. And then Paul gives the words of institution, verses 23 through 26. Now in verse 27, he tells us what it means to be unworthy. 
Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Thou shalt not take the elements in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes the elements in vain. For, the re- for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. What does it mean to partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner? It means to judge yourself and to condemn yourself and to have no confidence in yourself. That's what it means to partake of the Lord's table. It doesn't mean you're sinlessly perfect, but it does mean you are humbled for your sins. In all of these examples, to blaspheme means to use the means of grace without the fear of God in the heart. Turn to 2 Peter and the description, 2 Peter chapter 2. The description that Peter gives of the false teachers. We could read the whole chapter, but for the sake of time, uh, I won't read the whole chapter to you. Starting in verse 10. Uh, Starting in verse 9. Peter is giving all these examples of God's judgment. And he describes those that are judged. And starting in verse... uh, Verse 8, he's, he's speaking about Sodom and Gomorrah. Then he says, Lot was delivered. It says, that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul day and night by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Verse 9, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed, notice carefully, and are not afraid to blaspheme dignitaries. The Greek word of speak evil is blaspheme. And notice how he describes them. They're carnal, they walk after their own pleasures, and they're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. In the parallel passage of Jude, Jude expands this idea and he says, what he's referring to is that even when Michael the archangel was wrestling with Satan over the body of Moses, Michael didn't even rebuke Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. We blaspheme what we do not fear. What does it mean to fall into the hands then of the living God? Well, this commandment is a warning as well as a lesson. Exodus 20, verse 7. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The warning of this commandment teaches us several things. First, men do not regard the Lord's name. Generally speaking, we are not impressed 
by the magnitude and the grace and the holiness and the terror of the Lord. Paul says in Philippians 2.22, all seek their own and not those things which are Christ's. Many as well in authority, fathers, elders, magistrates, put lightly by this commandment. The next thing that this warning teaches us more explicitly now, many who are guilty of this commandment, who are guilty of this sin, they will escape God's, uh, I'm sorry, they will escape man's justice. Consider Eli the priest. Samuel's first message to Eli was that the Lord will judge you because you have not run your house well and the temple is corrupted because of your sins. Basically, Eli, you have blasphemed the tabernacle of the Lord. God is going to judge you. Eli escaped all of man's condemnation. But God eventually caught up to him and took his life. Think also Psalm 50, verse 21. Psalm 50, verse 21. The Lord has an accusation against Israel, and and he speaks about the wicked. Verse 16, but to the wicked God says, what right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? Meaning, what right have you to hope in my promises since you blaspheme my word? When you saw a thief, you consented with him. You've been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil. Your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander against your mother's sons. These things I have done and kept silent. And you thought I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Many will escape man's judgment. None will escape God's judgment. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. The author says, let's hear the sum of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. For God will bring everything, including every secret thing, into judgment, whether for good or for bad. In our day, conscience sleeps under the warm blanket of outward peace and prosperity. On that day, conscience will awaken to the cold light of the final day when the books are opened and every man must give account of his life. On that day, blasphemy will be judged. So what are we to do with all this? We are to repent. And seek the Lord. Because remember what his name is. Turn to Exodus 34. Exodus 34 verse 5. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, 
the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Isn't the grace of God amazing? That very name which we blaspheme sometimes without even knowing it is also the same name that we run to to find grace and forgiveness for that very blasphemy. There's more. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Blasphemy is a very serious sin. Blasphemy is a sin that grows when we lack the fear of God in our hearts. When we, when we think that His promises are vain and empty. When we think that His word is not really true. When we think that His threats are just so much sound and noise. When we do not fear the Lord, that's when we blaspheme. But those that fear the Lord are promised salvation. Listen to the promise of Malachi, that great book about God's name and blasphemy. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord listened and heard them. And so a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and meditate on his name. You see the picture that Malachi is drawing here. It's almost as if, you know, sometimes in, in the home when you have little children and perhaps wife, uh, uh, mother or father, you're, you're puttering about some other part of the house doing chores and the kids are playing in the next room and you're distracted with your chores and, and then you, you suddenly notice it's a little too quiet. And, and you, you go back around into the living room to see what's happening. And what you see there is, is that your children, who most of the time are fighting, are playing together. They're being sweet together. They're, they're enjoying one another's company. They're, they're playing sweetly together. And perhaps, as my wife has done and I have done, perhaps you stay there and look. The children don't know that you're there. But you lean against the post of the door and just watch and delight and thank God for the mercy that's there in your house. That's what the Lord God does with his children who fear him and speak on his name. He is, as it were, looking throughout all the earth for those that fear him and understand. And when he notices them, he stops and listens and just observes and rejoices and writes it down in his book and he says they shall be mine says the Lord of hosts on the day that I make them my jewels and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him the great day of God for behold the day is coming Burning like an oven, 
And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, on that same day when the Son of Righteousness arises and burns up all of the wicked who did not fear the God, uh, the God of heaven, you who fear my name, that same Son of Righteousness will be to you a Son of Healing. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked. For they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for revealing to us your law. We thank you that it performs a great work in our lives, a very necessary work to show us the depth of our sin so that we might see the height and the breadth and the depth of the love of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us of our sins, especially where we have blasphemed your ordinances that you would wash us with the blood of Christ, that you would renew us, that we might live for your name. Teach us your fear, that we might walk before you all of our days. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.